Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I feature Sarah Worknot. She has held the position of the co-director of Skalhegan School of Painting and Sculpture for 10 years. I'm delighted to feature Sarah for two reasons. First, I want to introduce you to her and talk about Skalhegan and the wonderful work they do. And second, I'm intrigued by the fact that Sarah researched social movement theory and focused on liberation theology. She essentially studied revolutions and her point of view is very pertinent in the world that we all live in today. Sarah holds a significant position at Skowhegan. She runs a core educational program, the admissions process, the educational daily life on campus, and the current expansion plans. She also works with alumni and was hands-on organizing the Black Artists Retreat. Sarah leads all efforts at Skowhegan to support artists in the expansion of their practice. She has published and sits on boards and committees of other organizations. Sarah is also very involved and works closely with Linda Good Bryant and Project Eats. Welcome and enjoy our talk. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. Good morning, Phyllis. Thanks for having me. Yes, yes. We have a lot to talk about um, your role as as co-director at, at Skowhegan um, and the fact that you studied revolutions in the past. Uh, I'm excited about the conversation and um, I know listeners will be uh, fascinated by some of the things that you have to say. Uh, your perspective will be so interesting. So, as, um, so let's open up with you basically telling us about yourself and your role at uh, Skowhegan and just about the residency in general for those people who, who aren't aware of it. Sure. Um, I have been a co-director of Skowhegan now for uh, about 10 years, moving into my 11th. Um, prior to that, I was the associate director at another school in residency that's kind of it was similarly split between um, the organization being based in an urban area and the actual school being in a rural area. And that was called Oxbow or is called Oxbow. And that was split between Chicago and rural Western Michigan. Um, so I've been doing this work for about 20 years at this point. Um, I don't have a background, a formal background in art making, um, but I started at Oxbow when I was in my early 20s and it was going through kind of an institutional scale shift. And about six months after I left or six months after I started at Oxbow, everybody on the year round full time staff quit in kind of quick succession. And 
ultimately I was the only person left. (laughs) Hands-on experience. (laughs) Right into the deep end of the pool. Um, But it was a really formative, rewarding time for me um, in learning learning about how to kind of understand a vision of founders that really put a lot into, kind of took a brave step in, in creating a, a community that's centered around art making um, and really learning how to tap into that initial vision and kind of make it contemporary for our time period. Interesting. So tell us what you're doing now. Well, right now I'm three months in into my <laughs> apartment work life, you know, one room all day, every day which is a big change. The Skowhegan program should have started uh, actually on Saturday would have been our, our first day. So I'm feeling a little bit of a, you know, identity crisis being away from, from that life. Um, oh, you had asked about uh, Skowhegan's program in general. So it's a nine week residential intensive for emerging visual artists and 65 people from around the world once a summer, come and join us on 400 acres in rural Michigan, I mean, sorry, rural Maine, um, to make work and to engage with each other over the course of the nine weeks. Um, There's not a huge amount of kind of structure or framework to the program, but just enough to kind of allow people to have um, a baseline from which to really expand their practice, respond to site, respond to the community, and kind of live very kind of chaotically if it's working well, I would say, in terms of their making and their relationships with each other. That's so interesting. You must really love what you do. I do. I do. And it's hard to be away from it right now. It's such a special time period that is, you know, often very difficult. Um, it's not easy to, to live as adults um, in community like that, but also, it's really ultimately very rewarding, uh, I think. And, and, you know, I've watched people really feel empowered and, and build confidence and kind of restructure their practices in really remarkable ways, just from the gift of time, but also the, the very specific people that they meet that they wouldn't have otherwise encountered. And that is really the whole purpose. So, Is the program rigorous? Um, you know, again, so it's, it's kind of open-ended. Um, so the rigor comes from the individuals, which I think kind of growing into that rigor for a lot of people is part of why it's so rewarding. Um, you know, you're not often surrounded by only similarly committed human beings all day, every day. Um, when you're at Skowhegan, you know, it's 65 people, but it's closed. So you don't really, you're not with your family, you're not with your friends, you're not with your kind of typical community that you go to for support. So it's a challenge in that way. Um, and that's where the rigor really comes from is, is kind of this individualized kind of stepping out um, and engagement with others. It must be amazing. 65 artists. It must be very invigorating most of the time. Yeah. I mean, you know, when it's doing its job, it's, you, it's exhausting, right? Yeah. So you're just going 20 out of 24 hours of the day. Um, 
in some sense. And, and, you know, that is, that is an invigorating and exhausting process, but it is really, it's, you don't actually, after 20 years of, of, of living like that for me, I would say it's very hard to just return back to regular life because it's, you know, it's thrilling. It's, and, and it's also not, it's thrilling and it's not easy. And that is, um, a very specific kind of emotional space to operate from, I would say. You isolate it and it's beautiful. The surroundings are beautiful. Mother nature, yeah, it must be. So 65 people that anticipated spending their summer, how are they, how are they now? How are they dealing with this? I know you, you probably pulled in so many different directions at this time. Well, so, you know, we moved into work from home fairly, well, around March 13th, I think, or March 12th was our last day in the office. And at that point, which seems like it was a lifetime ago, um, we had the, we had, we had the time to kind of observe how schools and other residency programs were kind of dealing with kind of the flurry of getting people home and, and canceling programs and, and what have you. And so we made the decision very early on to cancel the summer. Um, and we were only about halfway through the admissions process, which is we received 2,500 applications for the 65 spots this year. Um, and we do a very intensive kind of rigorous admissions process. Um, so we were only about halfway through and could pause it right then and there. Um, a big part of our admissions process is having the ability for the jury to meet in person and really deeply dive into each application uh, through conversation and being together. And so it didn't, we could have done it by Zoom, um, but I feel like we would have lost a lot. And then on top of that, I didn't want to put the applicants in a position um, of preparing for something that ultimately seemed likely to be canceled anyway. So we just put the brakes on it. So everybody that has applied for 2020 will be considered in full for 2021. And we just rolled everyone over um, and won't accept additional applications and no one can change the work that they applied with. Um, But we'll reconsider the entire pool once again, once we are able to like sit down in a room together again. (laughs) Right, right. And it hopefully, hopefully this time next year, you know. Hopefully. I know. Hopefully in the June of next year, we'll all be back on campus. You know, I mean, I think a big part of it also, that decision process was also thinking about, you know, our, the diversity of the program is really important and thinking about limiting who could come or people that couldn't get into the country or all of those things. We just, we didn't want to do that. So hopefully we're in a position in a year from now, although who knows, um, to kind of be able to reopen in the way that that is really foundational to what we do up there. So, so let's talk about current events. Okay. I'm so curious to, to hear what your perspective is on things. Uh, so let's talk about the protests and, and during the conversation, if we could also touch on or share your opinion on how you feel the unemployment rate, the, the fact that there are so many people that are, available to participate. Share with us your opinion on how that also impacts a a current day rebellion versus some of the uh, revolutions in the past. Sure. Um, Well, I guess I'll I'll start with my 
my background, as I had mentioned, I didn't study art making um, or art history or anything as, as an undergrad or a grad, but I did, as an undergrad, I studied uh, linguistics, um, which was kind of interesting. An important base for some of my thinking going forward. Um, I went to the University of Maryland, which has a very rich Chomsky and linguistics program. And, you know, Chomsky is always talking about hierarchies and power and governance, both in his political life, but also in his linguistic life. So I think that was a really kind of that lens was kind of the base for me to move into what I studied in graduate school, um, which I went through and did not finish because of the um, subsequent emptying out of Oxbow from a staff perspective. So I had to <laughs> grad school on hold, but um, I had been studying at DePaul University in Chicago and they have an, they had a, an interdisciplinary program, which means that I was able to kind of create the course of study that I wanted to. Um, and at that point I was really interested in nonviolent revolution and uh kind of the easiest, most relevant way for me to look at that was by taking a number of courses in social movement theory. So looking at the conditions under which revolutions are successful or not successful, I suppose is the, is the real question. Um, and that eventually evolved into looking at liberation theology, which, you know, was a irritant to the Catholic church, um, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, for a long time, um, which basically kind of looked at removing a church hierarchy and kind of spreading it within a population of, of lay people to really talk about social conditions and things like that. And, you know, I think that's really where I became also very aware of thinking about education that takes place outside of more formal institutions and kind of the power that can come from people learning kind of alongside of each other rather than being taught from the top down. Um, and so that really, it's not directly related to the work I do, but it is really actually directly related to the work I do. Um, and in terms of our current moment, you know, I'm partially the reason why I studied social movement theory. I was kind of a young activist through high school and early college and kind of, uh, well, I, I started to question whether how public protests actually functioned in the U.S. at that point, kind of post-Vietnam, post-civil rights, even post kind of AIDS crisis epidemic with ACT UP and everything. So looking at like what kept us as a population from engaging in the kind of protests that we're actually seeing right now, which is really impressive and exciting and is forcing a lot of conversation and a lot of really meaningful structural change, hopefully. And to some extent, you know, I mean, the conditions under which this is happening is somewhat coincidental, but not coincidental, I guess, in some ways. Yes, there are a lot of people that are unemployed, but, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement isn't simply just about kind of police brutality, right? It is all of this stuff combined. It's healthcare, it's mobility, it's class, it's access, it's unemployment, it's it's you know kind of the devastating numbers of people that have died from COVID in certain communities, but not in other communities over the last couple of months. So while it's true that there are a lot of humans that have 
the time and capacity to be out in the streets and protesting this. It's kind of just the boiling point of, you know, an intersection of a number of different issues that, you know, for a long time have just been simmering below. Right. You know, in some ways it's a cynical way of looking at it, but, you know, kind of post-civil rights, I feel like the, the oppression of people of color just got kind of more clever. You know, it just got disguised as policing and prison and educational system uh, just got more clever, but all of the same kind of restrictions on our bodies were, were kind of still there, not to undervalue kind of the, the enormous impact of the civil rights movement, but racism is clever, I suppose, in some sense. <laughs> Yeah, and technology has has been helpful. Yeah, it, you know, to 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 think that we can now, you know, we have proof. I mean, proof that someone killed somebody. Everyone can see. There's no question. Yeah. It's it's the smart yeah. tools, different tools. Yeah, yeah, it is smart, smart and different tools. But you know, I mean, it also has its limitations because you know there are a lot of people, particularly trans people of color, who's Deaths aren't documented in the same way. Not yet. Um, Not yet. Yeah, not yet. But things like Instagram and Twitter at least allow us to kind of share the stories that are really important in pushing this kind of forward. But, you know, I mean, visibility isn't perfect, I guess, is the best way to put it. Any comment on where you, you think we go from here? You know, I mean, I think this is like, you know, there's a lot of anticipation. I, I, you know, sometimes I don't. I don't know how much to like, you know, it's like that thing you want to believe in it, but then you don't want to believe in it because you don't want to be disappointed. So it's, it's really, it's really hard to know. I mean, I think that there is a lot of really important legislative stuff happening and we have to keep the pressure on in that respect. Um, But there's also just a lot of really small work that needs to kind of be tended to in order to make it to make it real, you know, I mean, I think we've, we've seen, especially after the civil rights movement, what happens when you legislate change, which you need to do, right? It changes the, the, the minds of a lot of people, but you also have to kind of do the person to person work um, <laughs> to change some of this. And this, we're talking, this is 400 years that has to get, that needs to get undone. It's like, it, it, it's not going to happen overnight, you know? It's bit, bits and pieces. It's it's nice to see that they are responding well to um, correcting some of the issues we have with police brutality. Yeah. We're seeing fast results, yes. Everything in America is always about the money. So, like, how right. all of it shakes out is, is there's going to, you know, we'll see if these kind of the re-defunding, reallocating funds <laughs> actually happens in a real meaningful way because it's not just about the police, right? And it's it has to be also related to how people live, what they have access to in terms of education, um, how people can grocery shop or how people can vote. I mean, they're so, it's so deep. Mm-hmm. All of the restructuring has to happen um, in order to make all of that really meaningful in some sense. You know, it's obviously it is really important that the police stop killing people, but there's also daily life that also has to kind of be reconfigured. Right, right, right. I'm optimistic, 
hopeful, all those things. I am. I'm always hopeful. I would say that's always, that is, that is, if you, I feel like if you're not hopeful, it, it <laughs> doomsday. Yeah. yeah just, <laughs> it would be a lot. So I have to choose to be hopeful. So I speak to a fair amount of artists and there are some that are, you know, confined to home. They don't have access to their studios. And then there are those that are, you know, working at home, the studio is an extension of their home. And I'm curious how this period of time will be uh, reflected in, in artists' work. Yeah, it's funny. In some ways, it's like, you know, part of what is really exciting about working at Skowhegan is that you can't just bring your whole studio with you, you know? Like, it just doesn't make sense for a lot of different reasons. And so, in some ways, you become you employ different kinds of ingenuity, I suppose, <laughs> in, in how you make and what you have space to think about. So, you know, in some ways, this could really be a kind of similar situation, right? Like, what do you have at your fingertips that, that then becomes the material through which you're working? Or who are you confined with that becomes like the the subject or the conversant in what you're thinking about um so it, it it's really it could be really meaningful time you know but there you know also there are a lot of artists that are you know facing being an artist in many ways is a precarious way of living and so there are a lot of people that are in not ideal situations for them to be thinking about their practice or thinking about how to make and you know I think one of the good things also about Skowhegan is that you don't necessarily, it's, it removes the, the pressure of seeing an immediate result and really is thinking about like kind of an incubation period within like even within a body, you know, in some sense. So like what comes out of this, we might not see the effects of immediately, but we may see in, in five years, you know, the, um, for those especially that have been kind of further put into unstable circumstances where making isn't necessarily the, the easiest or first um, part of their lives at this moment. So, I mean, I find it really thrilling to think about what, what, what the art world will look like. And, you know, obviously lots of other things are getting questioned at this moment too. You know, the overlap between COVID and, and the protests right now is that, you know, this is an opportunity to question lots of different economic models and how museums function and how galleries function and what, what are the expectations of artists of color versus the expectations of, you know, non artists of color. So there's all kinds of ways in which this could be really explosive for, for the art world. In a good way. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to be alive. Me too. I, you know, <laughs> I, a witness I, this. See this. I had some, great hope during Occupy, you know, that seemed like a really significant moment and, and one that we hadn't seen really um, in a long time. And, you know, for whatever reason that, I think it had a lot of effect um, in changing the conversation in the country, but I, this one, this feels very different and, and really, really promising. And long lasting. I wonder, yeah. I wonder how yeah. long the protests will continue. Some interesting things happening happening around the U.S. People are also looking at different ways of protest too now. You know, like even just I'm new to Instagram, but like seeing how people are 
fundraising for organizations that are doing the work and have been doing the work for long periods of time is really exciting and how how those organizations and that work is getting seen and and so I think it's not just happening in the streets and mass. I think there's really a discursive rich conversation that's happening about sustainability and how how to support this work to be ongoing. Mm-hmm. Well next year you'll get to explore all of that, huh? <laughs> in person with a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Next year, I would think it's yeah that'll be an ex- exciting residency. A, a term. Yeah, there. I think it will be. I think it will. I I I feel grateful that people can be in their cities and having these conversations with their peers and out in the streets and all of these other things. I am a little sad that we're not able to talk about it in real time on campus, but I think, I think this is important. So it was, I'm, I'm glad it's happening and I'm excited for what we will dive into next summer. Mm-hmm. So this has been a great conversation. It's nice to have a positive spin on, on the world today. Yeah. I, well, we all need it. You know, I mean, I think that's another part of, we, we talk a lot about self-care, but I think Optimism it goes a long way. It does. Even sometimes delusional <laughs> Right, right. You just have to turn the TV off. I mean, you just have to stop watching the news at some point and just, you know, take a, take a break. So this is our last question. Um, so as co-director of Skowhegan, how, how do you want to impact artists and, and the people that you work with? Um, you know, I mean, I think... One of the beautiful things about Skowhegan is that's kind of always shifting because the group is always different from year to year. But I mean, I think the promise of a place like Skowhegan and it is, is really that it offers even just like a temporary moment, even if it's not all day, every day, but it has glimpses of moments of getting under some of the conditions by which we live our lives in the outside world. Um, I think I was really drawn to art making because it has the potential or it has like the quest or the desire or the urgency to kind of express things that we don't know or see or understand. And, you know, as a person that has lived in the world for 43 years, kind of having that space feels really important to kind of have the ability to imagine and question the conditions under which we live. Um, So my, I guess my real desire is to kind of undo some of the kind of, I always put it in terms of like neoliberalism, but like undoing some of the desire to understand everything because the way that we understand things is often determined by this kind of structured past that we've been given, which I don't necessarily believe is true, right? Like we're seeing that in the streets right now, like this past that we've been taught and told and taught to aspire to like a modern version. It's like, it's just filled with kind of lies and oppression. So like if there are nine weeks during the summer where some people can kind of step away from understanding that trajectory and really start to think about how to build worlds in a new vision, then that's what I'm, I'm really 
the most interested in, in helping with and understanding that that obviously that kind of new vision has to always constantly butt up against our current conditions. Um, and that's where the real kind of the real work and learning takes place, you know? Um, and so he offers the time to really, to really engage both of those things at once, I suppose. Um, and really by virtue of having so many different people from so many different spaces makes for, makes for difficult conversations, but then offers the time and space to kind of go back to rebuilding this new, this new universe in some ways. Um, you know, I'm very influenced by, by Octavia Butler in some sense. And, and so thinking about, you know, not in space, but, but in here, but like on our, on the ground, how, how do we kind of create new visions? Well, you're consistent with your passion. I mean, studying liberation theology, you, um, yeah, you're consistent. And, and f- from an intellectual perspective, uh, Skowhegan is where you should be. And they're, they're fortunate to have you, but it's a perfect, it's a perfect match. Thank you. I, I was, my life has been all like a weird, it's been kind of similar, like it's directed in a funny way, but it's all kind of probably <laughs> accidental, but that's all part of philosophy of life, I suppose. is like, you're just kind of open to all of the different things, like all of the possibilities. It's a great way to live. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been great, Sarah. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. I hope we can do it again sometime. Oh, for sure, for sure. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.